Today is our final week of the series we've been in throughout October called Follow Me. And so this is the fourth and final week of those. If you've missed any of the others, you can go on the website, on a podcast, anywhere that you can listen to a podcast. You can look at Covenant Church Sermons, and you'll find us. Look for that red logo cross, and you can go back and kind of pick up whatever you missed. What we've said through these three weeks is discipleship is essential in being a Christian. Discipleship is uh, responsive. And then discipleship, last week we even talked about it, it's costly. There's something about it that's costly. Today, what we're going to do is pivot from what it means to be and become a disciple, and we're going to talk about the essential that is making disciples. And so part of being a disciple is making a disciple. And so we have this picture, uh, this kind of white picture here on the stage with me, and I might refer to this from time to time, but I kind of want it to just sort of be a static visual for you, that each of us are the vessels that God has created. Each of us are vessels that God has given us uh, a fullness in Jesus. And so our role in the world is to see ourselves as a vessel that is designed to be poured out upon others. And where we get off or we get cross in our world, and we'll see more of this in a minute, is we consider ourselves kind of holding vessels that we just want more and more and more. And we don't see ourselves as vessels that are designed to be pouring out into others. And so throughout the morning, I'm just going to kind of keep referring to this concept. But the idea here is that if we see ourselves in this and we don't see places in our lives where we're pouring the grace and the goodness of Jesus into others, then it means we have some work to do. So to get started, we're going to go to uh, the place we started this whole series in Mark chapter 1. This is the beginning of Jesus calling his disciples. The scripture says that passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. It says, uh, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. So this is the beginning where he's basically saying, I'm here to make you my disciples and you're going to become fishers of men. So he's foreshadowing that they're going to then have a role of their own in doing the same thing. So then we fast forward through the Gospels into Matthew 28, and we see Jesus has uh, been crucified, has resurrected, and he's appearing to his disciples. So this is the other bookend, if you will. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we start with making disciples. We get to the end of Jesus' time on earth, and he's telling people, make disciples. It's, It's a perfect bookend of what he's come to do, which is to make disciples of us that we might make disciples of others. In a sense, he's saying, I came that you might be filled, and you exist that you might be a filling presence in the lives of other people around you. These are what uh, are called in kind of uh, academic Christianity. You would look at this passage, and what you have is what we call the four alls. The four alls. And so if you look at the scripture again, you'll see them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, literally meaning at all times, I'm with you always to the end of the age. These are the four alls of Matthew 28. We're going to go through each and every one of them, but it's kind of going to give us the roadmap as to what it means to be a disciple-making disciple. So first, all authority. Uh, Barna is a group that does uh, survey information. They do a lot of polls of 
uh, especially faith polls. And they're an incredible research organization, and they're pulling in all kinds of data all the time to give uh, each of us a better picture of, of what the church looks like, of what the faith looks like in modern times. Barna released a study in February of 2019. It was compiled throughout 2018, and it was just released this year. It was called Generational Differences in Faith Sharing. And this is some of the, the beauty that, that came out of it. And so this first slide, it basically has a few different statements that people can choose to agree with or disagree with, and then it's broken down by generations. So you see millennials and Gen Xers and boomers and elders. And, and what we kind of need to see is, is everybody sort of agrees that part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus, that sort of everyone agrees that the best thing that could ever happen for someone is for them to come to know Jesus. This is sort of a universal belief among Christians. The best thing that could happen to someone is they could know Jesus. And then uh, even, say, 90% on average of people will say, when someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. That's a pretty good slide. That's a pretty encouraging slide that we still know what, what we need to know. We still know where we need to go with this stuff. But we go to the next slide, and it doesn't look quite as encouraging. So in a decreasing way, people are, feel that they are gifted at sharing faith with other people. And then maybe most troubling is this middle column. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47%, if you look at the millennials column, we're going to pick on millennials, but not because they're millennials, just because they're a great representation of the generation that is going to be leading this church in the days to come. 47% of millennials say it is wrong to share one's faith in hopes that someone else might adopt it. Now, this is sort of incredible because on the previous slide that we're not going to go back to, 94% of the same generation said that the most important, life-changing, greatest thing that could ever happen for anyone is to become a follower of Jesus. The most important decision anyone could ever make was to become a Christ follower. And as a result, you go, well, that's good. So these people must be really convinced this is a good thing to do. And what you get instead is that half of those people would say, not only is it not a good thing to do, it's wrong to share my faith. And this is sort of a typification of a problem that we see in the church where we all kind of know what it is that we think we believe, but we don't actually know how to live that out. Or sometimes our values conflict with each other, that we know that our job here is to make disciples, and yet we look around the people around us and we go, I don't know that I, don't know that I want to make disciples. That doesn't feel right to me. Culturally, that's not a cool thing. And so one in two millennials would say it's wrong to evangelize. Gen X, one in four. Boomers and elders, one in five. And if you took a cross-section of who Covenant Church is, that would mean that one in the three of us in this room would say I think it might be wrong to share my faith with hopes of someone else adopting that faith. This shouldn't surprise us. We live in the postmodern world. We've talked about this. Each person is a sovereign state in our modern world. Truth is as each human defines it. And so things that used to be pretty clear and apparent are no longer clear and apparent because truth is fungible. It's changing as we go. If I went to the university and I stood near the union and I held a sign tomorrow afternoon that says your gender was decided at birth, that is qualifiable hate speech. Now that may be scientifically true, but it's no longer true in a world where the truth is meandering through us, where we're still deciding what we believe about today, much less about tomorrow, much less about biology or who we are. This is not a statement on whether gender dysphoria is a real thing. It is. This is a statement on the fact that truth has been let go of and it no longer has authority in our world. 
That we're no longer a people that have any respect for a a larger truth because we live in a post-truth society. And so you turn on the news and you have to decide, is it real news or is it fake news? And then the fake news you read, you wonder if that's really real news. And now we have a whole generation of people that don't know if the earth is flat or if we went to the moon or not, because that could be fake news too, because all of truth is sort of, I don't know. What's real? What's fake? If I did a poll and hear about who believes climate change is real, don't raise your hand. Half of you, if we just take a cross-section of society, half of you would say climate change is a real thing and a major problem. The other half would say climate change is fake news and not a thing. And then if I asked you to defend your position, you would all give me the exact same studies and data to defend your point. Half of which would say supports the fact that climate change is real, and the other half would say, no, 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 the same data says it's not real. Which is to say, we face a fundamental truth problem and an authority problem in our world. And so in a world where truth is arbitrary, Jesus claims authority. In a world where truth is arbitrary, Jesus claims authority. All authority. Jesus says, I have dominion in this place. This is my kingdom now. I have a claim on this place. I own this place which is a big claim to make, but it should change the way we see the world around us. And so instead of tiptoeing through a world afraid of what tripwire we're going to hit, we instead say, if Jesus is who he says he is, did what he says he did, and is the son of God who came to set me free, and he's claimed all authority, then his authority has been imputed to me, and I have authority anywhere I go. So it's your great aunt Mildred's house on Thanksgiving when the topic veers into faith and you start kind of telling somebody about it and she goes, hey, hey, I want this to be an enjoyable dinner. Nobody bring up religion. No religion in my house. You could rightly say, aunt Mildred, this is Jesus's house because he has claimed authority over it. Now I would suggest you make a to-go plate before you uh, address aunt Mildred that way because you're going to be outside pretty quick. But the authority has been given everywhere. In all authority, make disciples. In your school, in your office, in your driveway, in our culture, we shrink back and Jesus' authority challenges us to step up. And that no longer gets to be an excuse. Well, look, I can't really evangelize here. I can't really share my faith there. It's not really okay in this new culture we live in. It, it just, it goes against the grain. And Jesus goes, exactly. So do I. So we are called to make disciples under the authority of Christ, but who are to we make disciples of? Jesus says, all nations. Our second all is all nations. The question I'm asking is, who gets what's in the picture? Who gets it? Jesus says, yep, all. All ethne, the word there, which is the word we get ethnicities from. He's not talking about geopolitical lines drawn. He's not saying all nations, as in America, the United States, and then Mexico, and then Canada, and then Russia. He's saying all people groups. When uh, the United States, not the United States, when Europe colonized Africa, the United States colonized everybody later, but that's a different, that's consumerism. When, when Europe colonized Africa, it created geopolitical lines all over everywhere that didn't used to exist. And so Belgium got this area, and then they drew a line on a river, and so France had right below that, and then they drew a line on this lake, and then Britain had that slice, and so we called them nations. All nations are in there. And yet when in the 60s and the 70s, when Africa was decolonized, when power was handed back to the indigenous people, what was left was a mess. 
Because the Western world, the European world, had drawn lines where they didn't belong. And so in a place like Kenya, there was not one Kenyan. There was Luo people, and there was Kalenjin people, and you know the Maasai people. And in, in South Africa, there were Zulus and Hosas, and there was all these different people. And they were told, no, no, you're one people now. In Nigeria, there's over 300 distinct tribes in one nation. 300. So the Olympics would come and they'd be like, why don't the Nigerians care as much about the Olympics as everyone else? And they go, because that's not the first flag they fly. They got 300 tribes, Muslim background, Christian background, northern, southern, eastern, coastal. There's all these different Nigerians. And the idea here is that we have to see beyond what we think of when we read make disciples of all nations. Be like, well, I'm here. There, we got some. No, Jesus is saying make disciples of every single people group. And so you zoom out to the world and you see there are so many. And you zoom into Bowling Green, you zoom into Northwest Ohio, you're in Maumee, you're in Toledo, and you go, okay, who are our people groups? And you start to see them. College students, blue collar, white collar, black people, white people, poor people, rich people, tenured professors, the chronically unemployed, whatever. You start seeing subgroups everywhere. And you go, oh, those are the people we're supposed to reach? Yes, all people. However you want to define those specific subgroups in any given culture. Make disciples of all of them, Jesus said. And here's an extra all. I said there's four alls in the text. I'm going to add a fifth here. It takes all of us to do it. We are the body collectively. This is way too big for any one person. And the fact is, no one, no matter how gifted they are in relational evangelism or anything else, no one in this room can reach all the people of this place. Because you don't have those connections. You don't have that language. You don't have that voice. It takes all of us to be a part of it. We actually have kind of a ministry model I'm going to put on the screen. It's a really simple little circle, but it's got three distinct parts. So everybody that comes to a place like Covenant, they've been drawn by the Holy Spirit to, to see what it looks like to be part of the body of Christ. And then when we get somebody, I'm going to be really frank and honest. If you're a guest with us, we want to know you with this card. We want to actually know your name but we actually want to move you from the draw side to the develop side. We actually want to get into deep life with you. And we want to use the information here to connect with you in a real way that we might begin to see what it looks like to, to be developed together into the fullness of who God created us to be. That's as plain as that is. But, but so the draw piece is how do I connect people to the body of Christ? How do I connect them to Jesus? And then the development piece is evangelism and discipleship. How do we kind of grow each other up into the people God created us to be? At which point we then deploy outwards on mission together to know Jesus is that development piece. And then to make him known is the deploy piece. We are then called to go out of this place. And this is, this is how I see the world when it comes to our body called Covenant Church. But it's the same way we see the world when we think of our body as the local church in Bowling Green, the local church in Northwest Ohio. When somebody comes to me and goes, I don't know if I like the music at Covenant, I go, tell me what you like. We got a place that you can get developed. You can deploy because we need your boots on the ground out there. Really? You'd send me to another church? Yes, immediately. We got a whole bunch of them we love. Or this place is too far for me. Is there somewhere closer to my house? Yes. Let me connect you directly to somebody. We want you to be developed. We want you to be connected in a real way because there is a mission afoot. 
We've been invited into something radical and life-changing, not just our lives, but the lives of those you've been called to reach. The trouble is, so many churches, so many uh, Christians are even 2D Christians. And we take two of these that we like, and the one that's uncomfortable to us, we kind of leave it alone. So if we don't draw people, if we're just kind of the developing people and the serving people, but we don't actually invite new people into the kingdom, well, that's, there's no new life there. And that body calcifies and crumbles. If we don't develop people, we're like, hey, I like inviting people and doing the service bit and being out there outreaching with the community, but the, the hard work of Bible study and discipleship and like, like growing in Jesus, that's just a lot of work and I'm really busy. Well, that's the kind of church that creates really shallow Christians and then sends them out to slaughter. The third one is if we don't deploy people, then, then we are just drawing and developing and drawing and developing. We cut the deployment out of it. We become fattened consumers. All protein shakes and no workout. The reality is some of you are great with kids. We need you to make disciples of kids. Some of you are great with middle schoolers and high schoolers reason we have covenant students set up is so that you might engage with them and make disciples of kids in a transitional age. You reach college age people, I don't know how to talk to somebody in college. They look at me like I got eight eyeballs because I'm like 120 in my soul and I look at them and they got things I've never heard of and I try and they're like, you're kind of awkward and I say, I'm sorry. But we have people that can reach college age people that are great at it, that they're like in their natural habitat. Can you reach rich people? Rich people need to get saved. Not everybody can reach a rich person. Not everybody knows what that's like. I can't speak the language of somebody who's got seven figures in some offshore bank account who's trading stocks by the day and they're building their eighth pool. I don't know how to reach that person. But man, get on their Gulf Stream and lead them to Jesus. Somebody needs to do it because they need to know Jesus as much as anyone else. Can you reach poor people? Can you reach people who would look at me and say, you don't know the life I've lived, you don't know what I've been through, you don't get it, I'm not listening to you anymore. But you might know. You've been called to reach someone, and each of us in this room has been called to make disciples, but it takes all of us, each of us in our lane to get it done. Are you a plumber? Reach other plumbers. Are you a banker? Reach other bankers. Are you a professor? Reach other professors. Are you a stay-at-home mom? Reach other stay-at-home moms. Make disciples. If you are a Browns fan, you need to go disciple other losers. (laughs) That that landed better. The first service, I said, if you like Star Wars, you need to go disciple other nerds. But kind of, see, it wasn't as good. As somebody who reads while he brushes his teeth, I own the nerd card pretty hard. I mean, we can joke about the different areas that we have access and the areas that we have influence, but those are real. I don't know who the quarterback is for anyone in the NFL, but if you do, you can have a conversation with somebody I can't. I saw Peyton Manning on a commercial. I was like, oh, he's good, and he's been retired for a decade, you know? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. But somebody knows that, and you reach a person I can't reach. We don't live in a world where we have professional minister pastor who stands on the stage and does the work of ministry and then the rest of us give our money to it and we clap for it and we say, this was fun to be part of a fun community. The gospel says, the the scripture says, we are all ministers. I am your chief sinner. 
We are a body made up of sinners, saved by grace, now called saints, and each and every one of us has a role to play. And I may stand here because I have one gift, but I don't have the gift that you have out there. I don't have the gift you have changing a diaper that allows someone to hear the gospel clearly on a Sunday morning. I don't have the gift you have with dealing with a ninth grader. I don't have all those gifts, but some of you have gifts that I don't, and we need you to make disciples of all people There is someone you are supposed to be reaching. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, all people, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people that all possible means I might save some. And I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He evangelizes to share in the blessing of salvation. And you and I think the blessing of salvation is at the moment of salvation. It is ongoing. It is growing. And you don't get to overflowing unless you engage in the fullness of the invitation of disciple making. Overflowing comes when we are engaged fully in who God has called us to be. And so we look at the picture and we go, I just don't have that much to give. There's not much in here. I would say, get to the work of making disciples and you will find the cup full and overflowing. Paul says, I reach anyone I can reach so that I might know the blessing of my salvation. It's so much more than just crossing the line and getting fire insurance. It is about living in the fullness of a kingdom that is here. I've given you a really practical tool There's one of these on just about every other chair. If you don't have one in your chair, you can reach across and grab someone from someone else. If you already have one, you should use it. It's a really simple tool. You look at the the one on the screen on the left there with the three little silhouettes of people. Has the scripture reference of what I just read. And the challenge here, the, the, the invitation is to find three people in your life that you know that God might be asking you to reach for Jesus. And that means something different to everybody. Let me make it in really clear terms. You would write three people on here that you are praying for daily for an opportunity to share Jesus with. And that looks different in every circumstance. And so that might be an invitation to something here to slow play. Hey, you want to come to the father-daughter dance? And now you're starting to get them even in the community a little bit so that they might be more open to your testimony one day. Maybe it's having regular conversations so that you might find the entrance point where you can say, you know what? I went through that. Let me tell you how God saved me from it. But three people that you know that desperately need Jesus in their life, you could write them here. And if you pray for them daily, I promise you, you will be shocked at the windows of opportunity that open up for you. It's simple, but it is profound. This is not a vague thing where we kind of hope and wonder if those people might meet Jesus. This is our commitment before God that we can write, put it on our dashboard, put it on our bathroom mirror, put it on our fridge and go, these are people that I believe God has given me influence in their lives and I will pray that through me or anyone else, they might hear the gospel. If you don't know three people that need Jesus, it is time to meet your neighbors. Bake some cookies, walk down the street, and say hello. It seems like a lot to do alone. Gosh, that seems like a lot. That's a big heavy weight you just put on my shoulders. You're not designed to do it alone. 
We have these things called community groups, people that get together and strengthen each other, combine their gifts, combine their talents, combine their networks. When we have someone come to our community group that's like musical, I just fade into the background because I don't have a musical bone in my body. But we got a bunch of people that do, and they all of a sudden connect over something that I have no clue about. And then somebody comes in, and they're a big Browns fan. I make fun of them for a while, and then I fade on out because we got people in our group that are huge Browns fans, and they connect. And through their shared connections and all these random things, they find pathways to the gospel. We have biblical community for a reason. Groups connect us to important networks that help us share the gospel more, more fully. We're designed to do this together. The other side of the card has the up arrow, this left and right arrow, and the down arrow. This is your personal discipleship world. The down arrow is who are you leading? It should come to mind really quickly if you've got someone. If you don't have someone come to mind real quick, you may not have somebody. Who are you intentionally leading? Which doesn't mean you've got to put on a tunic and put, strap on some sandals and walk through the dust of Israel and lead them like a rabbi would. It means maybe you invite them to coffee every couple weeks and you begin to share life together and you're a step ahead of them on the journey and you're willing to, to pour into them. You're willing to sort of test out what it means to take your life and begin to pour it into another. Who are you leading? The middle one is the left and right arrow. That's who are you locked arms with? Who knows your junk? Who, in my case, has your wife's phone number? So if they sent something's off, they can call her directly and go, is this real? Or tell me how it really is at home. Who's that person in your life? The third and final is the up arrow. That's, that's who are you following? We all need the humility of following somebody. The last time we brought this card out, that's someone in their mid-60s come to me, really accomplished guy. He said, hey, that really convicted me. And I thought he was going to talk about the down arrow, that he's not leading enough people. And he said, I know exactly who I'm supposed to be following, but I haven't reached out in a while and I need to. I need someone pouring into me. And now this is a 40-year Christian who's at the top of his profession. And the first thing he realized is he needs someone that he's following because that creates a humility and an ongoing filling because this is how we were designed. If you don't know any of the answers to these questions, what you are is what we call in uh, really formal terms, isolated. It's really common today. Got a thousand friends on Facebook and not one in real life. This is called isolation. The enemy loves isolation. Isolation leads to impotence. Isolation leads to someone being taken out of the game entirely. Guys, if everybody was focused on just the bottom of that card on the down arrow, if everybody was just focused on leading one and being intentional to lead one, the rest takes care of itself. Because then no one has to worry about the up arrow because someone's going to be calling you going, hey, you want to go get coffee? Hey, you want to come hang out on Friday night? Hey, you want to go to this game together? And you go, man, this guy's really, you get a lot of stuff with that guy. Then it dawns on you, you go, oh, I think he's discipling me. If we focused on that, it would all get covered. So the question is, when we have those relationships, what do we do? Hey, that's great. I could take someone out. I can go to coffee. I can have a drink. What do I do with them? Jesus said, teach them all, the third all. Teach them all that I've commanded. Our mission here is pretty simple, to know Jesus and make him known. That's, that's the mission Jesus lays out. Help people know Jesus better and then teach them how to make him known in every aspect of life. And you say, I'm not an expert in every a- aspect of life. And I will tell you, neither were the first disciples. But you can walk in it together. 2019, there are more resources out there than ever before. 
Just in the last 52 weeks, I went back and did a cursory look at what we've been through. Just from the stage, we've talked about sex and addiction and prayer and grief and victory and sin, relational dynamics, parenting, finances, and so much more. So if someone has a question in an area you haven't thought of that you haven't related to Scripture, chances are, well beyond this place, there is a thousand places to go find wisdom and then engage it together. We are called to become disciples who make disciples. Who are you training? Who do you look to when you need wisdom? Some people in the room right now are thinking, I need to be a bigger pitcher before I'm ready for that. Look, there's not enough in me to pour out at the moment. If I poured out, there'd be nothing left. I'm not ready to lead someone else. It's the number one thing I hear when we talk about discipleship. Someone will come up to me and say, I'm just not ready to lead someone else. I need another Bible study. I need to get rid of a habit in my life. I need to get rid of a problem that I've had for a while. Then I'll be ready. And we've said it before, and it applies here as well. Discipleship doesn't require readiness, but responsiveness. If you have been a follower of Jesus for two days, man, lead someone who's been a follower for one. And discover along the way Be humble to say, I don't know that. Let's find out together. Hey, I've never heard of that. Let's look into it together. And kids do this. The reality is your children and your grandchildren are being discipled today by the culture. Very clearly. And the things they're believing, that 47% of millennials believe that evangelizing by sharing their faith is wrong, is morally wrong, that is because culture has evangelized them to a place where that is now the common belief. And they don't know how to separate the two because guess what? They weren't discipled. This isn't PhD level stuff that we're being asked to do. Siblings and cousins and big kids on the bus do it every day. Your kid learns a new swear word because he rides the bus to school. That's discipleship in action. I'm teaching you something you don't know. You don't have to be Jesus to lead. You just have to be willing to share what you've learned so far. You have to be willing to listen. Still sounds big, and so the question now in the room is how can we possibly take all this on? This is a lot all at once, and I agree it is. Which leads us to the fourth and final all from the text, which is always. I am with you always, at all times, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit has been left in place of Jesus, and it dwells in and through us. Each and every one of us has the fullness of the Spirit poured into our lives. We are full There's not more. You get the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and while you may be refreshed as the time goes, while you may be refilled as the time goes, you get the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not the first drop. You get all of it at the moment of belief. There's no waiting for more Holy Spirit. There's no waiting for another Bible study. There is the fullness of God in you. And the Spirit of God guides and directs. It counsels and comforts. We aren't left abandoned but empowered In the book of Acts, the Greek word for the explosive force of the Spirit in our lives is the same word that we take for dynamite, dunamis. You have dynamite in the Spirit of God within you if you would only think to access it. The way of Jesus continues in and through each of us. You exist to know him and make him known. There is no higher calling upon your life. You have been blessed that you might bless others. You have been saved that you may be a showcase of salvation for all you run across. You have been reconciled by the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed 
by the person of Jesus, that you might be a vehicle of reconciliation and redemption for all and with all of your days. You have been poured into. Quite plainly, you've been poured into so that you might pour out. You have been drawn by the Spirit of God. You have been developed into who you are today and who you are becoming tomorrow so that you might be deployed in the priceless participatory work of salvation in the lives of others. You have been filled so that you might be poured out. It starts with responding to the invitation that we started the whole series with. Jesus says, follow me. Each and every one of us has a daily opportunity to do that. I can choose today to say, yeah, Jesus, I'm in, or I'm on my own agenda. Once we say yes to Jesus, we say yes to following him. That leads us to the four alls of Matthew 28. So the question is, who's in charge? The answer is Jesus has all authority. When we say, well, who am I supposed to reach today? Jesus says all people, every group. Well, Jesus, what do I teach them? If I'm going to say yes to you, you've got to tell me what I teach them. He said, all that I've commanded Be a disciple that makes disciples. And when at the end of our rope, at the the height of overwhelm, when we go, Jesus, how can I possibly do this with my life? He says, I'm with you always. And you have all of me inside all of you. And together, it is totally possible. Let's pray. 